0: Uh, Well, friends, uh, what a year it's been. Uh, It's almost been apocalyptic, hasn't it? Uh, We've had some of the worst bushfires in living memory. And uh, you might remember the smoke that shrouded much of our our city, making it hard to breathe. Uh, We've had the floods that thankfully extinguished the bushfires, but itself caused widespread devastation to persons and property all across our state. Uh, Now we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, which has brought the world to its knees, showing little sign of going away quickly. And it's only March. Uh, If you had told me this time last year that life was going to be like this, uh, I don't think I would have believed you. Uh, Yet, friends, while this is not something that we uh, might have wished for ourselves, because Um, Things are very difficult for for some of us at the moment. Uh, I just want to mention that something unexpected also seems to be happening. Uh, I know it's early days, but as our world is reminded of how little control we have over our lives and just how fragile we really are and how close death is on our doorstep, it seems that more and more people are searching for God. Uh, in the US, for example, we are, see, uh, we are hearing of shelves in Walmart being emptied, not of toilet paper or pasta, but of Bibles. Uh, anecdotally, we are hearing many stories of people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, all across this world as they seek answers to the bigger questions of life. Uh, Even in our neck of the woods, um, we've been getting a steady stream of people who have found us online and are making inquiries about the Christian faith. Uh, One article I read this week had, had the big heading God has our attention and we are listening. It does seem, doesn't it, that sometimes God works in unexpected ways to make himself known and to bring about his plans and purposes in this world uh, for the good of his people and for his glory. Uh, well, we've been working our way through uh, Matthew's Gospel, as, as many of you know, uh, focusing our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be a part of his eternal and heavenly kingdom. But today I want us to see some very unexpected things that Jesus says and does. Uh, You might have a sermon outline in front of you, if you have. Uh, These are the the three headings. Uh, Number one, an unexpected act. Number two, an unexpected question. Uh, Number three, an unexpected twist. And I want to say that as we see these unexpected things, uh, these things that Jesus says and does, uh, I hope and pray that we might not only find great comfort uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, but that we would be deeply challenged to amend our lives so that we might truly live as his disciples. Well, firstly, um, we see in our passage, Jesus doing this unexpected act of cursing a fig tree. This unexpected act of cursing a fig tree. Uh, Now, to set the context a little bit, uh, you might remember that we are now in the final days of Jesus' life before he, he completes his mission by dying on the cross in order to ransom many and then to rise again as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus entering Jerusalem for the first time, didn't we? Uh, We saw him coming into the city as God's chosen king, uh, not riding on a war horse, but humbly riding on a donkey, suggesting the kind of king he was going to be. Uh, Further, we saw the crowds enthusiastically welcoming Jesus as the king, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Finally, we saw him coming into the temple, which is where the worship of Israel was concentrated, only to drive out the traders and overturn the tables of the money changers. Why did Jesus do this? Well, as we saw last week, he did it as an indictment against the hypocrisy of Israel and her leaders who trusted in the temple, who trusted in their outward religiosity, but had hearts that were far from God and his ways. And so the relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders is a bit icy at this point. But in today's passage, I want you to notice that Jesus returns to Jerusalem. This is the second day, and he does this very unexpected thing of cursing a fig tree. You can see it there in chapter 21, verse 18. If you have your Bibles, chapter 21, verse 18, it's also coming up on the screen. It says, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come to you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Uh, Now, friends, this is a bit unexpected, isn't it? It's not uh, sort of Jesus meek and mild, which is uh, the Jesus that we often have in our heads. But neither is it Jesus just being, you know, hangry or spitting the dummy or flying off the handle because he doesn't get his way, uh, which is what some people have suggested about Jesus here. And so what is going on here? What is this unexpected act all about? Uh, Well, I'm no horticulturalist. Uh, In fact, uh, I've killed a few trees or plants in my time, uh, although not in in the miraculous manner that Jesus does here. But I'm told that with fig trees, the, the leaves and the fruit come at the same time. And so if you see leaves on a fig tree, you should be able to at least see um, some edible fruit that is starting to bud. Uh, you might not see the whole fruit, but you should be able to see the beginnings of the fruit which you can uh, pick off and eat. And so when Jesus sees the, the fig tree with leaves, notice in verse 19, he is expecting to see some fruit, but he's disappointed to see that there's nothing there. Uh, One commentator says that the leaves advertised that it was bearing, but the advertisement was false. Uh, Further, uh, in the Old Testament, fruit on a fig tree symbolised the kind of life that God expected of his people. Uh, It was the life of obedience, which actually brought blessing and, and deep joy what has Jesus seen in the lives of the people of Israel and in particular her leaders? Well, he's seen a shocking lack of fruit, hasn't he? He's seen an empty and hollow religiosity in the worship that went on in the temple, but no desire to be ruled by God and live his way and and do his works. And so when Jesus curses this fig tree and, and notice how immediately it withers it's meant to symbolize the judgment that will soon fall on the temple and the hypocrisy of Israel and her leaders. Uh, now, I'm not going to say too much about the next few verses that follow this incident where Jesus speaks about you know, faith and moving mountains and, and prayer. But I just want to point out that Jesus is not here, you know, just going off on a tangent and giving his disciples an extra tutorial on prayer. Now, what he is doing is he is explaining the significance of what he has just done to this fig tree. And so when Jesus speaks about telling this mountain to go and throw itself into the sea in verse 21, he's not telling his disciples that, you know, if they just pray really hard, they can do the impossible. No, no, he's referring rather to the Old Testament Uh, and in particular the prophecy of Zechariah 14, which was read out to us earlier by Dorcas, which speaks about the end times when God will come to judge his enemies and to reign in this world in an earth shattering way. Uh, You might remember that astonishing image in Zechariah 14 of God standing on the Mount of Olives which is in Jerusalem or just outside of Jerusalem, and the mountain being split into two before God comes to judge and to reign. It's highly symbolic language, but it will look like this mountain in Jerusalem has just been tossed into the sea. And so Jesus here is saying to his disciples that they are to pray for this day to come when all those who stand against God like the religious hypocrites of his day, will be judged and God's reign established. In other words, they are to pray, as he taught them in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, and God will listen. Now, friends, uh, what are we to make of all this? Uh, How do we understand uh, what we've just heard? Well, uh, I just want to point out that if you are someone who has put your trust in Jesus, there is a difference between the hypocrite who is outwardly religious and yet inwardly opposed to God and the disciple of Jesus who trusts in him and desires to please him, uh, even though he or she is sinful and weak. It's worth pointing that out because especially for those of us who have tender consciences, it's very easy to, Read passages like this uh, where it speaks so much about hypocrisy in a way that robs us of our assurance in Jesus. However, at the same time, I want to ask uh, where is the place that God would expect His ways to be followed and His works to be done? Where is that place? Well, in Jesus' time, it would have been the temple. But for us, it is in the church, isn't it, which is God's new temple. And so this is a warning to those in the church and especially its leaders who are outwardly religious or who might be outwardly religious but inwardly far from God and not bearing fruit in their lives. Uh, Not too long ago, uh, we had the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse in this country, didn't we? Stories were told of church leaders engaging in unspeakable evil, uh, unspeakably vile and corrupt ways towards children and the vulnerable, uh, most often in the Roman Catholic Church, and yet It was not just limited to the Roman Catholic Church, was it? Uh, The Salvation Army, the Uniting Church, the Anglican Church and its schools were all on the list. Uh, Even now there are churches and leaders of churches that practice man-made religion and yet have nothing to do with Jesus and listening to him and his ways. Uh, You go into some churches and the name of Jesus is not even mentioned. There's lots of mention about love, but not the Lord Jesus Christ who defines what love is. You see, it's all outward religiosity, but no inward desire to listen to God and to be changed and transformed by him. It's all leaves and no fruit. And this is a warning to them. You see, Jesus doesn't need the Catholic Church or the Anglican church, or any other brand of church, if there is no fruit, then he will simply do away with them, he says in this passage. Well, friends, uh, the second thing we see in our passage this morning is uh, Jesus asking the leaders of Israel a very unexpected question. It's actually a question that Jesus asked the leaders of Israel in response to a question that they first ask him in verse 23, uh, where they ask, uh, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? In other words, they want to know what gives Jesus the right to do all the things that he's been doing, including you know, riding Messiah-like into Jerusalem and overturning tables and healing the sick. But rather than answering their question directly, Notice that Jesus asked the leaders of Israel a question of his own. You can see it there in verse 24, can't you? Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Uh, It's a a peculiar question, isn't it? Uh, Why is Jesus asking them about John the Baptist all of a sudden? Now, what relevance does John the Baptist have to do with the initial question that they asked Jesus about uh, his own authority? Well, in order to understand something of this, we need to go back to the Old Testament prophets, and uh, in particular, the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, Now, at the very end of the book of Malachi, uh, before the coming of Jesus, the prophet speaks about the end times when God himself will come uh, to judge those who oppose him and to reign over his eternal kingdom. But it says that before God comes to do these things, he will send Elijah, the prophet. Now, listen to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But who was Elijah? Well, you might know that Elijah was one of the great prophets in Israel's history many hundreds of years before Malachi, who defended the worship of God over the worship of the Baals and the idols during the reign of uh, King Ahab, who was one of many bad apple kings in Israel. But in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, uh, we are given a strange description of Elijah. And notice that this description focuses or zooms in on Elijah's wardrobe. Uh, Let's have a read of 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. He said to them, What kind of a man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite." That's a very strange description, isn't it? Why this interest in the latest fashion wear of this particular prophet? Well, if you turn forward with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, uh, listen to how Matthew describes now John the Baptist when he arrived on the scene. Uh, Matthew 3, verse 4, it says, Now John the Baptist wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, It's the exact same description of Elijah in all his hairy splendour that we saw in the Old Testament, isn't it? In other words, John the Baptist is the prophet like Elijah that Malachi had promised would come before God himself comes to judge and reign over the world. And so if John is a prophet that speaks with the authority of God, surely Jesus, as the one who comes after him, Uh, also speaks with the authority of God. You see, the authority of John and the authority of Jesus are very much enmeshed and tied together. Uh, I was trying to think of an illustration this week. Uh, You can tell me whether this illustration works or not. But perhaps it's a bit like, uh, you know, when you see the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, doing a, a press conference and uh have you noticed that uh, you have someone uh, saying roughly the same things on, on the bottom uh, corner of your screen, but speaking in sign language? I mean both are speaking with the authority of the government, aren't they? you can't believe what one is saying without believing what the other is saying It's the same thing here if the ministry of John the Baptist who called on people to repent before The coming of the mighty one was invested with the authority of God, then surely Jesus also spoke with the authority of God as God's chosen king, and the obligation was to believe him. But why does Jesus ask this question about John the Baptist? Well, I think he does it here to expose the stubborn unbelief of the leaders of Israel who just refuse to see that Jesus is God's chosen king. Now, you can see this in the way that, that they do not answer Jesus' question. For if they answer that John's ministry was from God, well, they know that Jesus will ask, well, why didn't you believe John and get baptised by him? With the implication that, you know, why didn't you believe me? But if they answer that John was not a prophet from God, then they are afraid of what the crowds might do because the crowds all believed that John was a prophet from God. You see, these leaders of Israel are not really interested in the truth. Rather, they just want to save face and so they do not answer Jesus' question. You see, this is the real problem, isn't it? When it comes to believing in Jesus, it's not actually a problem of evidence. You know, Jesus healed the sick. He calmed the storm. He even raised the dead. He did the things that only God can do in full view of them all. Again and again and again. It's not a problem of evidence. And yet it is a stubborn refusal to believe in your heart that Jesus is God's king. Because to acknowledge him as your king means that you need to submit to him and that you need to amend your lives as you follow him. what a great tragedy to not accept Jesus as the king of your life and to miss out on the eternal salvation that he brings because of a stubborn refusal of the heart and the will to believe. Well, friends, uh, finally, we come to the last part of our passage where Jesus gives us a story with an unexpected twist. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, let's pick it up from verse 28. Uh, Jesus says to the leaders of Israel in verse 28, uh, what do you think? A man has two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? Uh, now, friends, it isn't very hard to work out the answer to Jesus' question here, is it? Uh, obviously, the one who did the will of the father in this story uh, is the one who said uh, they wouldn't do it Uh, But then turned around and did it. Um, And the ones who didn't do the will of the Father are the ones who uh, said they will do it, but then turned around and didn't do it. Uh, You see, uh, this changing of the mind uh, in the ones who actually do the will of the Father is what the Bible calls. Repentance. Uh, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Uh, I do this all the time, but uh, you know, it, it's like going one way on the road, but then changing your mind and doing a U turn and going the other way because, well, you've realized that you've been going in the wrong direction. But here's the twist. Jesus says that the ones who find entry into the kingdom of God are not the religious leaders of Israel who always say yes, sir, to God, but then refuse to obey God's word in their lives. Rather, the ones who find entry into the kingdom of God are like the tax collectors and the prostitutes who have said no to God in the past, and yet they change their mind. And they come to receive Jesus as their king. And they begin to live in obedience to him. They are the ones to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Now, uh, I don't think the mention of tax collectors and prostitutes here um, has the same emotional impact on us as it would have had on the first readers of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, You know, in our age, prostitutes have been glamorised and uh, tax collectors, well, uh, they're just accountants, aren't they? You know, uh, They are boring, but not necessarily corrupt or evil or wicked. Uh, perhaps the modern-day equivalent uh, to tax collectors and prostitutes would be the drug pusher or the rapist or the ones who hoard toilet paper in order to sell it to others on the black market. But, friends, What Jesus says here is extraordinarily good news, isn't it? For Jesus says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Those things don't matter. If you change your mind and submit to me as your king, says Jesus, and begin to live my way, then you will find a place in the kingdom of God for all eternity. Friends, are you someone who has changed your mind and put your trust in Jesus as your king? If you've never done that before, then this is the perfect opportunity, isn't it, to admit that you were wrong about Jesus in the past and to turn to him today in repentance and in belief. And Jesus says that you will find a place in his eternal kingdom where one day there will be no more crying, no more mourning or fever or coronavirus or even death. For those things will be done away with by the king who has authority over them all. But even if you are someone who has repented and received Jesus as your king, God's word for you and me today is still to repent. In fact, when tragedy strikes in our world and we have things like drought and flood and pandemic, we have no word from God that says that those things are because of particular sins or because some people's sins are worse than others. And yet we do have a word from God in places like Luke 13, if you want to look that up later, that when things like this happen in in our world, the proper response to God is always to examine our lives and to repent before him. Are there things that you and I have said or done or things that have occupied our thoughts, which we know to be contrary to the rule of Jesus in our lives? Are there things that you and I have loved in our lives more than Jesus, so that we have become too comfortable in this world and forgotten that heaven is our ultimate home? Are there areas of your life where you keep on saying no to Jesus, but yes to other things, other people, other opportunities? If we can see these things in our lives, then God says repent. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who repent and believe that Jesus is the king. Let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Um, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one who died for our sin and who has risen from the dead and is now seated at your right hand, ruling this world with all glory and power and authority. Our Father, we pray that you might forgive us for the times we have not sought to live with him as the king of our lives. And we ask that you would grant us the fruit of repentance. We ask that you would help us to be a people who are continually changing our minds uh, when we see sin in our lives and believing in your son as we learn more about him in your word. We pray that we might not just be leaves without fruit, Father, we thank you for the promise that one day we will see the kingdom of your son in all its glory and splendour. And we thank you for the promise that one day your son will rid this world of sickness and disease and death that bring us so much sorrow now and that we might see him face to face and enjoy him forever. And we pray that you would fill us with this hope as we pray your kingdom come.